If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, starting our new series, Going Through the Ten Commandments. Uh, It's my normal practice here to go through a book of the Bible and just to go through that verse by verse. Uh, But every once in a while, I will take a short break from that to do something particularly uh, still verse by verse, still in the text, still text driven, but uh, something that I think might be helpful for us, something I think is going to uh, move our Christian lives forward in our observance of it. So we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments these next ten weeks. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 3 for the first commandment this week. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first sermon that I ever preached is not one that I am particularly proud of looking back on it. I was uh, in the second grade, so I'm not really sure that I should be too hard on myself. Uh, I don't know if it even really counts as a sermon, if we're being honest about it. Uh, But my Sunday school class growing up had a mock worship service uh, where they assigned roles to everyone in the class. Some people were in the choir. Some people were the the worship leaders. They would sing a special. Uh, and then someone had to preach. And as the pastor's kid, I think that just fell to me by default. They didn't have anybody else they wanted to do it. So they asked me to prepare a sermon as a second grader to the other second graders in my Sunday school class. Uh, and I was forced into that, speech impediment and all, unable to really speak clearly at all. They still said, hey, you're going to do it. And the text I chose was one that I thought I really knew, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and I had my mother send me the notebook paper that I wrote it on uh, recently. And I looked at the entire sermon that I had because it was one notebook page just on the front in second grade, massive cursive letters from top to bottom, and about three-quarters of the page were me just writing the Ten Commandments. Uh, Not a sermon, just the text, me writing it down. And the little legalist that I was, I had one point in my message. I read the Ten Commandments and then said this, basically one sentence at the end. And my one single point was, these are the Ten Commandments. They are not the ten pretty pleas with cherry on tops. God commanded us to do them, so we should do them. And that was it. That was all I had on that paper. Hands in my pockets, slurring my R's. I said that, and then I sat down. It is my hope that uh, these next ten weeks are nothing like that sermon I gave in the second grade to my second grade Sunday school class. Because not only was I wrong on my premise, the Ten Commandments isn't even in the text. The word commandment isn't said here. The Hebrews, they called it the Ten Words, the Decalogue, you might have heard. So commandment wasn't even there. So my point doesn't even really hold just the premise. But I was also wrong in my approach. What I was doing was I was preaching the law. I said the Ten Commandments of God were like a stick that I could hit you with. Say, God commanded it, so do it. You shall have no other gods before him, so do it. And I was wrong to do so. I preached it like the Bible has only given us the law and has not also given us the gospel. It was a Jewish sermon without Jesus. I hope that this series, these next ten weeks, are fundamentally different from that first sermon. No, it's not my plan to lessen the impact of God's law on us. 
It's not my plan to read these and say, but this is why you should ignore them. That's not it at all. I want you to feel the full weight of the Ten Commandments on you, even now as a New Testament Christian. I want you to understand what they mean. I want you to understand why God gave us this law. And I want you to understand every time that you break it. Because I think any time that we're given a command from God, it is part of my job as your pastor to show you all the ways that we fall short of that command. But I also think even more so, it's my job to remember that we're New Testament Christians. That we're Christians who live in light of Christ. We're people who are saved not by our adherence to the law, but by grace, through faith in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So now we, who are not under the law, but are under grace, can still learn from the law, and we can see how that law points to Christ. That's what I want us to get out of these next ten weeks. So my structure throughout each of these commandments every week is going to be the exact same. There are four questions that we are going to try to answer every week. The first question, why is this wrong? For this week, why is it wrong to have other gods? Why did God have to give us this command? What's his purpose in giving it to us? That's the first question. The second one is, how do we break this commandment? What does it look like to fall short of this? In what ways are we sinners when we examine God's law, specifically in this commandment? What does that look like? Three, how has Christ fulfilled this command for us? Has he transformed it or has he replaced it in some way for us? Because I think that's something we have to consider as New Testament Christians. And then four, what do we do now? How should we go about following these commands as New Testament Christians in light of Christ and his gospel today? That's my structure. Every week, that's what you're going to get. Hopefully, the answer to those four questions. So question one, why is having other gods wrong? Why does he give us this command? What's the problem with having other gods before him? I like asking that question and answering it because it's likely something we've never even really considered before. I mean, if you're a Christian... Certainly your impulse, your kind of gut reaction should be to have Christ, God, as the exclusive object of your worship. Monotheism is a pretty big deal for us as Christians. And in our culture, we're likely not tempted toward the explicit worship of other gods, like the Israelites, like the first century Christians might have been. But the fact that we need this commandment, The fact that we have to examine it, even though it might not be something that we've always thought about in that way. I think even though it seems obvious, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have to analyze it in that same level. We'll ask the same question of every commandment over the next 10 weeks. And our answers, I think, are going to help us understand what God is doing in giving us these commandments. How we are so prone to break them that he feels like he has to make this absolutely clear to us. So why is it wrong for you to have other gods, to worship another deity? Well, the answer in context, the answer from these verses, it shows up in in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So from the context here, worshiping another god is wrong Simply because it's disloyal. If you're the Israelites, this God, Yahweh, has formed you as a people by making covenants with your ancestors, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He has heard your cries as slaves in Egypt. He has delivered you from the hands of Pharaoh with plagues and wonders. He parted this Red Sea that you might walk through it on dry land. You left Egypt with the wealth of the Egyptians. You plundered them even as you left, instantly becoming not only free, but also rich. So now, for you to turn around and to worship anyone else would simply be disloyal. God has done so much for you. And now you're going to turn around and give praise, sacrifice, adoration, thanks to anyone else, to another God who didn't do these things for you? What did they ever do for you? Why would you do that? That would be like the man who finally makes it big and catches his big break just to leave his wife who loved him when he was poor, when no one knew who he was. We know, we hear that, and it's just inherently wrong to us. You simply owe something back to the one who has done so much for you. So having any other God as an object of worship is wrong. Not only is it disloyal, though, it's also just untrue. There are no other gods before him. He is the one single sovereign ruler of all of his creation. So worshiping anything and anyone else as if they were God is simply to lie. To believe, to think, to do that which isn't true. God reminds them of that in verse 2 before he gives his command. I am the Lord, your God, the only one. There is no other God to worship. There are not greater and lesser gods among whom we might be able to pick and choose who to follow. There is the creator, and then there are creatures. Creatures being created are not gods. They're not worthy of our worship. But the one true God who has created all things, he is the God before whom we shall have no others. Anything else is a lie. He's simply the only option on the market. So he should be treated that way. He should be worshipped as such. And again, this claim to a single God and deity doesn't sound all that revolutionary for us, does it? For we people who are thousands of years after the influence of the Ten Commandments were given. But the common thought in all of the cultures in that time would have said otherwise. The Israelites that were just leaving Egypt... They had been in that place for 400 years. And in Egypt, there were over 1,400 gods who were worshipped. They had a lot of options available to them. Other gods that they could run after, that they could try to worship and serve. And now, as they come out of Egypt into the desert, and he gives them his law, he says, No, no. There is one God. I delivered you. They didn't. I defeated them with every one of my plagues. They were helpless before me. There is one God, and you shall have no others before me. The people needed this reminder right off the bat. Because without this commandment, why would we pay attention to the other nine? If it's okay for us to have other gods before him, then really, why do we care what he says at all? The instant he says anything that we might not like, that we might disagree with, we can just say, well, this other God's not going to ask me to do that. So I'll just worship him today. I'll just have him as number one. You can still be number two. You can still be around, you know, I guess, God. But he'll be number one because he's not asking me to do this. You can simply ignore his commands and prioritize anything and anyone else that doesn't require that same thing from you. 
if you don't follow this one command, if he's not the one and only God of your life. This command was actually the the central command of the entire Old Testament. When we look at the structure of the Ten Commandments, as you see as we go through these weeks, you'll hear people refer to the tables of the law, the first table and the second table. The first table of the law roughly corresponds to the first five commandments. They're about how you relate to God. The second table of the law roughly corresponds with the second five of the Ten Commandments. They're how you correlate to people. That's why in the New Testament, whenever Christ was summing up the law, he basically said, love God, love people. When people say that, whether they realize it or not, they're summarizing the Ten Commandments. The first five, love God. The second five, love people. When Jesus talked about the greatest commandment in the Gospels, in Matthew 22, he said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He was summarizing all of the law and prophets with these commandments, but he was more specifically summarizing the Ten Commandments, the two tables. Love God, love people. And then in Deuteronomy, when Moses was summarizing the laws for the people, right before they were going to enter the Promised Land, whenever they had to recommit to their covenant with God before they entered into the land of his promises, what Jesus was actually pointing back to when he said that, Moses gave the greatest commandment to love God in Deuteronomy 6.5. But the verse right before that gives what was called the Shema. It's really the central claim of Judaism. It was the one thing they kept coming back to. And it says this in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you see, to deny the one God as God. Really, when you get down to it, is to deny the entirety of the Christian faith. If we don't believe this first commandment is true and should be followed, we don't believe anything is true and should be followed. This whole book rests on the truth, the fact of this first commandment. All that we believe is built on the truth that there is one God who is truly God. Psalm 86 verse 10 says that just so simply. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. He is the only one. So to deny this commandment, to break it, is to be disloyal. But it's also to do, to say, to believe that which just isn't true. So if that's why he gave it to us, how do we break it? What does that look like for us to break this first commandment? How do we break it today? Well, we talked about, I mentioned the literal worship of other gods. Okay, that would obviously break this commandment, right? If you had a shrine to, let's say, a Hindu god in your house, and you bow down before that and worshiped it, you would literally be breaking this first commandment. That's absolutely true. But that's not really a common practice in our lives, is it? You don't often go into someone's home and find shrines to several deities you have to worship before you enter their house. It's not my assumption that many of you are here on Sunday and then tomorrow you're in the Islamic temple down the street. I don't think that that's what's happening. So then are we off the hook? Is that just something we get to say, all right, cool, check. First commandment, done, nailed it. What are the other nine? Let's see how good I do. Have I just wasted your time by setting aside an entire week, really an entire series, to look at this specific commandment from the Old Testament that's just out of date? It just doesn't apply to us anymore. Well, I I don't think so. I don't think I would have done that. 
I think we are just as prone to idolatry as the Israelites were. John Calvin, the reformer, said about all humans that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And I think he's right. We find idols. We look for them. We run after them. We create them. We love them. We're just as prone to worship other gods as the Israelites were. We may just not be as overt about it as they were. But I think we might break this commandment when we forget who God is. He's commanding us to have no other gods before him. So if he is supposed to be the one true God that we exclusively worship, then we have to know who he is. We have to know what he's like. Ignorance as to the nature and character of God simply just is not an option for us. In fact, the degree to which you know more about something else than you know of God is very likely the degree to which you are breaking this commandment. You cannot have him as your first and only God if you have no idea who he is. If you don't know what he's like. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says this. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Though this verse does say that God, in his grace, is willing to work with and for and to equip people in spite of their ignorance. I think it's also particularly saying that to point out the tragedy inherent to that. That he is equipping you even though you don't know him. How sad is that for you? Secret admirers may be a thing, but we don't really have the secretly admired, do we? When you know and love the object of your admiration, you might be able to worship them even if they don't realize it. But you're not going to spend really any time at all worshiping something that you don't know, something you don't understand. Something you know absolutely nothing about, that you have no relationship with. You see, inherent in this first command is the assumption that we will know and love our only God. So if you don't know him, if you don't know anything about him, then it is actually impossible for you to follow this command. You can't say you have him as your only God if you have forgotten who he is. You obviously can't follow this commandment if he's just simply not your God at all. If you don't believe in him, or even if you say that you believe in him, even though you deny him with your entire life, then you are breaking this commandment. According to the Ten Commandments, atheists, both formal and functional, can't be classified as good people, as lawful people. How can you avoid having another God before him if you don't even think he exists? In that case, isn't everything that you do think exists more of a God to you than the one that you think doesn't exist? I mean, if you're pretty sure that God isn't real, but you're also pretty sure that the macaroni and cheese that you had for lunch is real, what sounds more like a God to you? The made-up fairy tale thing that doesn't exist or the very real and tasty macaroni and cheese that you just had? It's impossible for him to be your God. To be first and foremost in your life, if you don't actually believe that he's real, that he's there. If you're pretty sure that God didn't create life because he doesn't exist, but instead we came about by chance, 
by stars colliding in space billions of years ago, then it sounds like you have more faith in chance than you have faith in God. And in a worldly sense, sure, absolutely, an atheist, someone who does not believe our faith, they can be just as moral as you and me. They can be just as good a neighbor, just as good a citizen, just as kind to animals as you and I can be. But they have no chance to follow this biblical definition of good, of lawful, or of holy. They break the Ten Commandments with every step they take. And I think the same is true for someone who might intellectually agree. They might formally nod, yes, there is a God, absolutely, I'm not like one of those people. I believe that he actually is real, that he does exist. And yet, with their entire lives, they're acting as if he doesn't. Someone who acts like there is no higher power that they have to answer to. Someone who has ownership over not only their own lives, but the entire cosmos. You see, you can't have him as the first and foremost God in your life if you are actively ignoring him with every step that you take. And I know right now you might be tempted. It might possibly occur to you to think in your head of someone else when you hear me say that. I might have said all of that and you thought, man, I wish they were here today. If only they could have just heard what he just said. Because they might claim to be a Christian, but they're just denying him with their entire lives. Let me humbly and gently suggest to you that thou art the man. You are who I'm talking about more than you probably realize. When you lie and you think you've gotten away with it, you're acting like God doesn't exist. When you go to that website and think that because you cleared your search history that no one's going to know, you're acting like God doesn't exist. When you refuse to pray for days, weeks on end, you're living like God doesn't exist. And you're breaking the first commandment when you do so. But the final way that I'll mention this morning that we break this command from God, though I think I could go on and on. This could be like just weeks of me just listing all the ways that we break this commandment over and over. And as much as you guys would enjoy that, I will sum up with just this one final way that I think we break it this morning. I think we break this commandment when we try to add other gods to him. We are to have no other gods before him. And before him there isn't meaning simply that he's supposed to be first. That we can't have anyone before him, but we can have as many after him as we might want. Before him means in his presence. Before him means that he knows about, that he can see. So having no other gods in the sight of the one who sees all things is to have no other gods, period. No other gods whatsoever. We cannot worship God and anything else. There's a name for that. It's called syncretism. And we Christians have been doing it for forever. God plus anything equals nothing. It's simply not biblical Christianity. Christ makes this point explicitly when he's talking about money in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So even though money in itself is not bad or evil, when it becomes your God, you have, whether you realize it or not, begun to hate God. In love for your other master. Okay, so obviously bad things, promiscuous sex, drugs, evil, 
Bad things added to God obviously are bad. But we just saw that amoral things, money, power, security, added to God are bad. But I think even the good things which become our God break this command as well. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, he wasn't saying that family is a bad thing or that your own life is bad. He's saying that family, as good as it is, makes a really terrible God. If your love for your family rivals your love for Christ, then I think you have to ask yourself whether you've broken the first commandment. If we're supposed to have no other gods, we can't add anything to the one that we already have, the one we already worship. There simply is no God and country Christianity. There is no God and family Christianity. There is no God and prosperity Christianity. That's what it looks like, I think, to break this commandment. So as terrible as you might feel right now, as many ways as you think you might have broken this commandment right now, I think we have to ask, how has Jesus fulfilled this commandment for us? He is the fulfillment of the entire law, and he fulfilled it perfectly. He showed us a model for what it would look like for us to live lives that are pleasing to God. So how did he do so specifically with this first commandment? Well, I I think really simply, really honestly, really clearly, he never forgot his father. For every moment in his entire life, as God himself in the flesh, he couldn't do anything but live a perfect life of worship. You remember, even when he was a boy in the temple, just 12 years old, when his parents couldn't find him and they found him talking to the priest, do you remember what he said in Luke 2? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He was about his father's business every moment. Of every day. And he did all that the father asked of him. That's how he fulfilled it. He fulfilled every obligation and every plan from eternity. Doing all the work that he was sent to do. John chapter 17 verses 3 and 4 say this. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ accomplished the work. He did everything that had to be done. He did it. Every law that had to be followed, he followed it. He was able to say with all sincerity at the end of his life that it is finished because he finished it. He did all that the Father asked. And he did only what the Father asked. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, there was no adding to his worship of God. There was no distracting him from it either. As God, he lived a Godward life in every moment, never adding to that or being distracted from it. And I think what perhaps might be the most incredible aspect of him doing what the father asked and only what the father asked is that he did so while also being fully present to the people around him. Fully present in every moment of all of his life. He didn't withdraw from people to focus on trying to keep this commandment. 
He didn't cloister up somewhere and think that if I'm going to have no other gods before him, I've got to have nothing else in my entire life. Other people weren't in his way. It's not that he kept it by being a bad son, by being a bad brother, a bad friend. No, I think he kept it by being the perfect son, the perfect brother, the perfect friend to everyone around him. By having no other gods, a rightly ordered life, he was able to love and care for those around him even more, even better than he could have otherwise. You see, Christ fulfilled this commandment for us by living every moment perfectly within the law and will of God. So as terrible as we are at keeping this commandment, as many times as we've broken it, just so much is he perfect in keeping it. Just so much should we be reminded that he has fulfilled every iota, every jot and tittle of the law for us and on our behalf. So then what do we do now? What do we do about this? Because if we're being honest, and hopefully we are, we break this commandment every day, don't we? Yeah, Jesus perfectly fulfilled it, but if I'm not careful, that perfect example really just shows me all the ways that I fail, right? It just makes me feel even worse that like, man, I was so bad at it, and Jesus was so good at it, now I know exactly how bad I was at it. If I'm not careful, that might be where I go. So then what are we supposed to do now, after the law is given, has been broken by us, and has been fulfilled in Christ? Well, first of all, I think we need to remember Christ's example. We should remember God in Christ. Jesus Christ, as God, is the God before whom we should have no others. So we should worship him as such. A life of idolatry, of formal or functional atheism, that breaks the commandment. So I think we should do our best to stop breaking the commandment. We should remember God in Christ. John 14, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So if we are supposed to have no other gods before God, and the only way to God is through Christ then I think we have to remember Christ in every aspect of our lives. We have to try to fulfill this command, not by trying to compete with Christ in our obedience to it, but by through Christ's obedience, we see and worship and honor the Father before whom we have no other gods. I think that's how we do it. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, we can, when we place our faith, hope, and trust in him and his finished work, we can be united to him. We can have his fulfillment of the law applied to us through repentance and belief. So no matter how bad we are at keeping this commandment, no matter how many times we break that same law, no matter how many other gods we keep running after, family, money, sex, power, security, No matter how many times we try to add anything else to God, through repentance and belief in Christ's finished work who fulfilled the law on our behalf, that his fulfillment might be applied to us when we are united to him through repentance and belief, through faith. That's how we honor this commandment. That's how we fulfill it now today. It's not by us just white-knuckling having no other gods before him. 
It's not us just grabbing life by the horns and wrestling it to the ground and saying, I've got no other gods. No. It's by us pressing into his fulfillment on our behalf. Every moment of every day. Living in that grace. Remembering God in Christ. We can remember that even idolaters like us can be saved. Though we've broken this commandment and will continue breaking this commandment, we know that the gospel has hope for us anyway. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 say this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. So we know from the testimony of Paul to the church at Colossae that though we are idolaters, though we've placed other gods on his throne in our hearts, we're not beyond hope. We can be saved through the gospel. And through that same gospel that saves us, we can avoid the wrath of God against our law-breaking hearts. We can move away from our idolatry and move toward the worship of him. And I think that's the, the clearest, the most obvious, though also possibly the hardest way that we can live in light of this command. We can have no other gods before him by living a life of worship toward him and only him. Calvin, again, when commenting on this commandment, said that we owe God four things in light of this command. First of all, we owe him our adoration. We should worship Christ. We should give him all the praise and glory that he's due. I mean, if he is the one and only God in our lives, then I think we should just treat him as if that's actually true. Whatever adoration, whatever honor you might have for anything else should really only cause you to continue in your praise through that object to its creator. You see, it's not enough for me to simply think that Pepsi is delicious. I have to, at some level, through that adoration of the best cola soft drink, Continue through that adoration to the praise of the God who gave me my taste buds, which allow me to enjoy this delicious beverage. Through the inspiration of Pepsi to Caleb Bradham in 1893. And the same God who gave the raw ingredients, which when magically combined together in Pepsi's secret recipe, produced the drink that I know and love today. I can't just like Pepsi. I have to love God. Who gave me Pepsi? I think that's what this kind of worship looks like. Ultimately and truly, we have to give, continue to give God the, all the adoration through his creation. But we should also give him all of our trust. That's another thing we owe God in light of this command. We have to trust him with every aspect of our lives. We should treasure Christ, knowing that the God we worship is worthy of our worship knowing that he won't ultimately leave us out in the cold. If he's your God, then you have to step out in faith that he actually is the one that you say you believe him to be. If you don't trust him, I don't know how you can also say that he's your, that he's your God. And if you trust him, then you look to Christ in every aspect of your life. Calvin called this third thing we owe God invocation. We invoke Christ in everything we do. We look to him in everything we do. He's our first thought. He's our highest joy. He's really the key to our lives and the place that we go for every answer that we desire. 
And I wonder, is that actually true for us today? I mean, what's your first instinct when you are lost and confused? When you're anxious and afraid? When you need an answer? Or maybe even when you're at the zenith of your joy, when things are as good as they could possibly be, is God where your attention turns? Do you invoke Christ in every aspect of your life? Because wherever... Whatever it is that draws your attention in those moments, I think that is probably the God that you have before him. And we shall have no other gods before Yahweh. And when he fulfills all those needs and desires that we have, we owe him our thanks. That's the fourth thing we owe God in obeying this commandment. We thank him as the source of all we receive, of every good grace that he's given us. And when we start to consider these things, I think we'll find that we have much more to be thankful for than we often think we do. A few years ago, I I started a practice that some of you may have noticed at this point. Whenever I'm praying for myself, just off the top of my head, in public, private, whatever, I start every prayer by thanking God for this day and all that he's done for me. And I think that that discipline over the years has worked to make me more thankful in spirit. I think that those words repeated at the beginning of every prayer aren't just words the more I say them. The more I say them, they become the pattern of my life. That in every moment, I might be thankful. That I might live my entire life in thanks for the grace that I've received in Jesus Christ and whatever it is that I'm encountering in that day. I think I'm much more a person of gratitude. I think I'm quicker to say thank you to him and to everyone else than I would have been otherwise. The first commandment that we see in this text that we've talked about today, I think it's probably the tallest ask of all the ten. That's why it's first. If you could somehow get this one right, the other nine don't really seem that big a deal. Surely, if God is the God of your life, avoiding murder shouldn't be that big of a deal for you. But as big an ask as this is, if you can figure out how to obey this one, the rest, I think, all flow from it. But even for people like you and me, people who are imperfect, people who have broken, who will break, today even, this commandment. These people in life who will never actually nail it. I think we can still respond by grace through faith. And have this commandment applied to us as fulfilled by looking to Jesus who nailed it for us. We can respond by placing all our faith in him. That in him we are not only accounted as if we fulfilled it, but we actually can pursue this same law now. We can actually start to fulfill it now. And we can give God all the worship he's due. All the adoration. All the trust all the invocation, and all the thanksgiving that we have. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people. Thank you for giving us your law that we might know how our lives ought to be ordered, that we might know the nature and character of the one who gave these laws to us, and even that we might see how terrible we are at keeping them. Because even in that, there is grace which points us to Christ. Help us to be a people who do not chase after idols, 
Help us to be a people who have you as the one and only God of our worship in every aspect of our lives. We love you and we thank you. And we want to have no other gods before you. So help us today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.